If you've got a Bible, go ahead and find Acts chapter 19. We're going to be in Acts 19 verses 11 through 20 today. And uh, I'll just say by way of introduction, you're going to read this text in just a second. And you're going to think, does this have anything at all to do with Oklahoma City or Edmond or Shawnee? Because the demographics they're going to be talked about in this text, uh, these are not like the primary target demographics for planning a church in Oklahoma City. Here's what I mean by that. Uh, We're going to be introduced to two groups of people in this text. The first group of people are itinerant Jewish exorcists. I know there might be one or two of you that are like, finally, we're going to get to me and my thing. Uh, But for the most part, there's just not a whole lot of people in Oklahoma City that resonate with that. Like, oh yeah, I can really relate to the story of a Jewish itinerant exorcist. Uh, And then the other group that we're going to talk about is a group of converts that meet Jesus in the city of Ephesus that got saved out of witchcraft and all kinds of occult practices who burn the equivalent of $6 million worth of witchcraft books. So you may be thinking like, okay, I know, man, we've got some people involved in the occult that are part of our church that have met Jesus, but really, like, what does this have to say 2,000 years later to a city that's in the heart of the Bible Belt, that's the buckle of the Bible Belt? What on earth could the Spirit of God do with this word that's living and active today with this text? And I just want to say up front, I actually think that this story that connects the brokenness of Jewish itinerant exorcists that try to borrow faith that they don't have and the true faith, the burning faith, the living faith that saves all of these people involved in witchcraft and the occult that actually reframes their life around Jesus, I actually think this story might be the most helpful story in the entire New Testament to address just how weird cultural Christianity is in the Bible Belt. And by cultural Christianity, I mean Christianity that sort of claims marks of what it is to be a Christian and yet denies the power of the gospel. So take your Bible. I'm going to read this and then we're going to dive into it. Really, really crazy story. I'm glad it's in the Bible. Here's what it says. Acts 19 verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, And Paul, I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. This became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Um, 
I'll ask you a question as we kick this off. Have you ever lost a fight? And I don't mean metaphorically like, have you lost the fight with the battle against belly fat or have you lost the fight to maintain your budget in the new year? Like, I'm not talking about metaphorical. Like, have you ever been in a fight, a physical confrontation and you just walked away and there was no way to argue that you possibly won it? right? Like I I was thinking about that today and I'm embarrassed to say I have way too many stories of losing fights. And one of them that came to mind was uh, years ago before my body started getting old and tired and brittle. um, But before that stretch of life where you start to go to sleep healthy and you wake up injured just by sleeping, before that started happening to me, we had a big group of guys that were part of our church that did a lot of MMA together. And we had some great coaches and a couple pro fighters and we trained a lot. And a few of us really put a lot of time into that and loved it. We're preparing for a lot of different fights. And one of the guys that was a part of our squad was, uh, was built like an action figure, like, like zero body fat, had 30 pounds on me. And one day it was my turn to spar this guy and, and to go full speed with him. And I don't really remember what happened except I do remember having a 230 pound man in a full mount on top of me with me on my back, raining down elbows and fists into my face. And there was just one of those moments of clarity, right? Like (laughs) there's just, there's just moments where you think more clearly than other moments. And in that moment, I was like, you know what? I don't know that I'm called to fight this guy ever again. Don't, I don't feel like this is a gospel issue. And uh, we got done with that fight. And I tell you that story because the one saving grace is at the end of that fight, I still have my shorts on. Like, I can't, I can't claim a victory. I can't say I won. I can't spin it and be like, well, in the second round, I really would have got him. Like, anybody was th- that was there, they know that I got the trash beat out of me. But at least I walked away with the dignity of having shorts on. Okay, in, in this story, these Jewish itinerant exorcists, they get beaten so severely, they flee bloody and naked. And I just want to say, that is a beatdown. You can't spin that to make yourself sound better. If you get beaten so severely that you walk away not only bleeding, but the dude that beat you has your drawers, you can't, you can't act like, man, you know, give me three more matches and it's all going to even out. Like you just got dominated. You got dominated. And and that's actually what happens to these guys. And here's what I want to point out. The reason that they get dominated is that they actually tried to borrow faith that wasn't their own. And and I just want to say borrowed faith, borrowed faith, co-opting faith, trying to claim the benefits of Jesus without life in Jesus will leave you as bloody and as naked as it left these Jewish itinerant exorcists. See, here's what's happening. They're seeing the power of Jesus and they're hearing these stories of Jesus through the life of the apostle Paul, setting people free and casting out demons and saving the lost. And these guys, without any personal experience with the saving grace of God, without lives submitted to Jesus, they try to borrow or co-opt the faith of the apostle Paul. And they look at this demonized person and they say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches. Not in the name of Jesus, who's transformed my life, who's rescued me, whom I'm submitted to, who regenerated my heart. In the name of Jesus, who I've heard about, who's done some really great things for other people in the name of that Jesus, evil spirits come out. And in that moment, what happens is borrowed faith leads to the inevitable conclusion. It always leaves you naked and bloody. 
Now, this is so stinking relevant for the moment in which we live, for the city that we're called to serve, for the part of the world that we're called to plant churches in, because all over the metro, all over Edmond and Shawnee and downtown and more, and as we plant churches in places like Guthrie and Lawton, all over this part of the world, there are pockets where borrowed faith is way more prevalent than living, life-changing, active faith. To prove what I mean, let me just ask you a question that I get to talk about with a lot of my friends that are not Christians. Like, here's the question. What makes a person a Christian? What makes a person a Christian? What is it that defines being a Christian? And here are some of the answers that we hear a lot in Oklahoma. We hear church attendance as an answer to that question. Are you a Christian? Well, yeah, I attend church. Some really regularly attend church. Some sporadically attend church. But I've heard multiple times since we planted Frontline Church in 2005, that being given as an answer to the question, are you a Christian? Yeah, I go to church. Another thing that we hear pretty often is, are you a Christian? And someone points to family tradition, family background. Of course I'm a Christian. I'm a seventh generation Baptist, right? I am so Baptist. I am so Baptist Like literally, literally, I vote with my family when we make any major decision about a restaurant. I'm still Baptist. (laughs) I'm still Baptist. I was born during vacation Bible Bible school. I was born while the lady was doing the felt board Bible study. I I literally came out on the carpet. (laughs) Was not baptized because I was an infant. Had to wait on that. But I am super Baptist. I hear that all the time. I hear it with, from my Methodist friends. Are you a Christian? Oh, yeah, man, I'm Methodist. Well, what do you mean? Well, like, my parents were Methodist. I'm Methodist. I'm Methodist born, Methodist bred. When I die, I'll be Methodist dead. Like, you hear that all the time. You hear it all the time. Uh, another thing you hear in the Midwest really often is um, you hear people refer to particular rites or ordinances or rituals as defining what it is to be a Christian. Now, don't get me wrong. Baptism is a really big deal. When done in faith, baptism actually is a really powerful sacrament of God, the Holy Spirit. But I hear this all the time. Are you a Christian? Well, yeah, I got baptized. Got baptized. Another one that's pretty common is uh, just the sort of basic idea that being a Christian is a part of a demographic group. Do you know what I mean by that? Like, are you a Christian? Oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. God bless America, I'm a Christian. I, I live in the Midwest yeah, I'm a Christian, huh, a fish, freaking yeah, I'm a Christian. <laughs> and I think, I, think, I think what you need to see, man, I think what you need to see is, as fun as this is to kind of joke about it, I think this might just be the most dangerous thing that we face as a church, is that there are literally hundreds of people that attend Frontline Church on a regular basis that would give an answer to the most definitive question of your life, are you a follower of Jesus? They would give an answer to that question that falls short of the one real answer to that question. It's borrowed faith. It's cultural faith. During the Great Awakening, which was this awesome revival that swept through sort of uh, the New England states of America, the East Coast, during that Great Awakening, the people that were getting saved and being transformed were cultural Christians for the most part that had attended church their whole lives but didn't actually know, love, and obey Jesus. Jesus put it like this. What makes a Christian? Well, he said to a religious guy, 
He said these words, you must be born again. Now, what does that mean? Like, it's interesting if you listen to news media or if you read a lot, journalists and different blogs and columns, um, a lot of people think that being a born-again Christian is like a subset of Christians. It's like a brand of Christians. Uh, they're the most conservative Christians or they're the Christians that have the big buildings and the megachurches. Here's what I want to say. There aren't two kinds of Christians. There's only one kind of Christian. And to be a Christian, to be a Christian is to give the definitive answer that Jesus asked that man, yes, I've been born again, or no, I have yet to be born again. To be born again is this beautiful miracle of grace in which you hear the great news of Jesus, that you were an enemy to God, that you had committed crimes of treason against God by wanting all this stuff and wanting nothing to do with him. And instead of giving you the justice you deserved, he bore the justice in himself through Jesus. He suffered for you. He bled for you. He died for you. He rose from the dead for you. He is alive. He is king. He is ultimate reality. And you can trust him and you can know him. To be a Christian is to hear that good news of the gospel and God the Holy Spirit to do this work of new life in your hearts. The Bible in the Old Testament talks about it like a dead heart coming alive or a stony heart being made flesh. The idea is that all of a sudden what happens is through the work of God, the Holy Spirit, a heart that didn't love Jesus, didn't want anything to do with the God of the universe, that just wanted his stuff, actually has faith and repentance, which is a turning from self to God. Jesus said, that's what makes a Christian. So in this moment and in our culture, there are a lot of answers that we give to that question, are you a Christian, that actually have nothing to do with the heart or the core of being a Christian. And it's a really dangerous place to live. It's a really dangerous place to be a church when there are so many people that fill up our seats and fill up our pews that might have come into the door with some really valid concerns and questions, but are confusing those concerns and questions with saving grace and trust in Jesus. Here's what I mean by that. Um, There's a lot of great places to start in your relationship with Jesus. And we hear these great starting places literally on a weekly basis as a church. Uh, A great starting place is um, my wife and I, we're now starting to have kids and our kids seem totally normal. And then our kid hit three, right? And, And now I'm afraid we might have a sociopath on our hands right? Uh, And you guys that don't have kids are kind of giggling like, no, people talk about the terrible twos. Two-year-olds are like angels compared to three-year-olds. Three-year-olds are terrible people. They're they're bad people. And everybody that says, oh, is somebody that's either forgotten what it's like to have a three-year-old or somebody that's never had a three-year-old. Three-year-olds are terrible. They're mean. If they could crush you, they would crush you. And they have the verbal skills to tell you what they think, which is never what you want to hear. Three-year-olds are awful. And so what happens with a lot of people in our church is it's like, man, I got a kid, I got a kid, and this is terrifying and the world's terrifying. I need the support of church. So they come to church. But let me just say, great place to begin a potential relationship with Jesus. Great place, great place, terrible place to end. We hear this a lot. I want to work on my marriage, so I'm coming to church. I just want to say, that's a beautiful place to start. I am so glad that in the last 
13-ish years of our church that men and women with really difficult, bad, painful marriages have drugged themselves into our community again and again and again. I'm so glad. Like, you, you can come here with a really bad marriage, and I believe that God has grace to do some deep stuff in your relationship. Like, we believe that. We fight for that. That's actually a really good place to begin a relationship with Jesus. It's just the desire to make your marriage better. That's a terrible place to end your relationship with Jesus. Thinking that Jesus' primary concern is your marriage versus an actual encounter with reality in which he's God and you're not. We hear this as a starting place a lot. Like, I'm single and I'm so tired of the dating world being like Mad Max beyond Thunderdome, right? That's how it is. It's just insanity. It's chaos. It's horrible. And I just want to meet some nice people. And I'm trying to do the coffee shop deal. And that's terrible because I've spent like $20,000 on lattes in the last year, right? This is awful. That's a bad place to meet people. I tried the club scene and all I found there were guys with very complicated back pockets on their jeans. Like, like very, very complicated, bedazzled back pockets. Um, tried the club scene and I just like, I just want to meet some normal, nice people. And I heard that maybe they go to church, <laughs> which, you know, Sally, like, no, not really. But, but that's, a, that's actually a decent starting place for meeting Jesus is you just want to meet some nice people. It's a terrible ending place. Another one that I'll give you is uh, we want to help with social justice. I mean, I love that. I, I love that we're called to love God, love people, and push back darkness as a church. And pushing back darkness is both telling people about Jesus and it's demonstrating the love of Jesus. So it's caring for the poor, it's engaging with our city, it's serving those that are voiceless. Like, that's a big part of what we are as a church. And I love the fact that we have so many non-Christians that participate with us as we engage in justice issues. It's good, man. It's beautiful. It's great. That's a great place to start as you're coming through the doors. I want to engage in social justice. It's a terrible place to end. The reason I say that is because all of those desires, all of those desires to deal with guilt or shame or to have a better marriage or to have support with your kids or to engage in social justice or to have a social circle that's a little less weird than your current social circle, like all that stuff can be good desires, but ultimately at the end of the day, without being born again, there is no freedom or power. Without knowing Jesus, cultural faith will leave you bloody and naked like it left these guys. It makes a boast of power. It tries to co-opt power, but it only has the ability to manipulate external realities and behavior. It doesn't have life to change a heart that's dead into a heart that's alive. And one of the things that I want to say again and again and again is just like an appeal to everybody that attends our church. The larger we get and the more churches we planted, I, I, I want to appeal to you again and again. Can you honestly answer the question, are you a Christian with an answer that is biblical and informed by Jesus? And if your answer to that question is not, yes, I'm a Christian. I've been born again by grace. My faith is in Jesus. I've repented of my sins. I've trusted in Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. If you can't answer that question like that, please don't call yourself a Christian. And that doesn't mean you shouldn't be here. Like we love the fact that there are so many non-Christians in our church. But what terrifies me are how many people that think that they're Christians and they're not. They're not. 
They've bought into these itinerant Jewish exorcist view of what faith is, which is borrowing something that's powerful for somebody else without it being yours. Now, the difference between these guys and those Ephesian converts is really stark, okay? Here's what's happening. These, these itinerant exorcists, they're trying to use the power of Jesus to get to the end of authority and career advancement as exorcists. These Ephesian converts, they're not trying to use Jesus as a means to get all the things that they think they need to be happy. They're actually giving up everything and extolling Jesus because he is the end. Let me read it to you again. Look what happens. So these guys get mastered, overpowered. They're left naked and wounded. Verse 17. This became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear came upon them all. Now listen to this next line. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. That means to be exalted or lifted up or seen as more valuable, more beautiful than any other name. Now look at the difference between these converts and these exorcists. Here's what it says in verse 18. And many, also, many of those who were believers now came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Um, today, that would be the equivalent of like 6 million bucks plus. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Okay, track with me on this for just a second. C.S. Lewis wrote a really brilliant chapter in his book, The Abolition of Man, on categorizing science and religion differently than how we categorize magic and technology. Now, this is a little geeky, a little nerdy, but I think it's actually really helpful, so bear with me. Here's what Lewis said. He said, actually... Religion and science get put into the same category because both true religion and good science concerns themselves with discovering ultimate reality and then actually bending in light of that reality. What does science invite you to? Well, science through observation and measurement, science invites you to look at the world as it is and say, okay, this is real. You can like it or not like it, but you can't change it. Right? You, you may not dig, you may not dig these scientific realities, but these are the realities, take them or leave them. In addition, religion, true religion does the same thing. True religion tries to ask the question, what is ultimate meaning? What's real? What's true? Now, here's what's crazy. We would think that we should categorize um, both religion and magic, kind of the same category of superstitious stuff. But Lewis actually says, religion and science want to deal with reality and us conforming to reality in our lives. Versus magic, magic and technology, which is kind of applied science, magic and technology, they're all about making reality bend to the desires and wants of us. So here's what's crazy, get this. These Jewish exorcists are trying to use Jesus and the name of Jesus like a moralistic magic equation to get what they want, which is power and authority over demons. These Ephesian Christians that were in the occult, and by the way, like the city of Ephesus was 
big time into witchcraft and magic. Um, there were these things called Ephesian letters, which were kind of spells and incantations and different sort of equations that were magic and talismans. And all of that magic was about looking at reality and manipulating reality to try to fit in with our desires and wants. So these Christians, here's what they're doing. They're extolling Jesus, which means they're valuing Jesus as more important, more real, more beautiful than anything. And as they value Jesus as more beautiful and real than anything, they actually burn their magic. They burn their magic and see Jesus as more valuable than $6 million worth of equations and formulas to try to manipulate and bend reality to their will. So you have these two groups, right? You have these Jewish itinerant exorcists. To them, Jesus is a means to an end. He's like a spell. He's like an incantation. He's like a magic equation. To these Ephesians, Jesus is better than all the manipulations and all the spells and all the incantations that they ever tried. Jesus isn't the means to the end. Jesus is the very end. So remember what we said, like magic it's about trying to manipulate reality to our desire and will. True religion is trying to actually be conformed to ultimate reality. Here's what's happening in this text. It's, it's a group of people that have encountered ultimate truth and meaning in Jesus Christ. That he's not just a way or a truth or a light. Jesus is, he is ultimate reality. He is ultimate meaning. And what's happened for these Ephesian Christians is as they've met Jesus, as they've surrendered to Jesus, as they've been born again, he's more valuable and beautiful than anything else. And hear me, instead of trying to use Jesus to get all the things that they think they need to be happy and fulfilled, Jesus is the end of their depth and their fulfillment. And they're willing to burn the stuff that they used to think was valuable. This is what Paul talked about. Having known Christ, he counts everything else as rubbish in comparison to knowing Jesus. Why? Because when you find truth, when you find ultimate reality, you don't try to bend it and tweak it and adjust it to fit in with your desires and wants. If there is such a thing as ultimate reality and truth, the invitation is for us to be adjusted in accordance with it. And what the gospel of Jesus teaches is that ultimate reality isn't just a concept. Ultimate reality is a person. He's a person that came to make himself known, that came to die, that came to pursue his enemies, that rose from the dead with the power of death and hell, and that actually welcomes all those who are willing to lay down their rights and their spells and their moralism and their manipulative religion and receive Jesus as ultimate reality and truth. So as we wrap this thing up today, there might not be a ton of us today that are gonna walk out of here and try to do a spell, put a spell on your boss or put a spell on an enemy. Like there, there's probably some here in a church our size. There's not a lot of you though. There's not a lot of you that are deeply involved in the occult. If you are, man, I'm really glad you're here. But there's not a ton of people in our church that are trying to conform reality to their will with magic and witchcraft. There are a ton of us 
trying to conform reality to our will with moralistic religion and playing games with God and playing games with each other. And these Christians, I love it, they're so darn free in Jesus that they're able to confess and divulge their practices. They're able to step into the light because the light and life of Jesus has cleansed them from darkness. They're able to be free. So today, I'm trying to make it as simple as I can. Simple as I can. Jesus is not a spell or a technology to get you what you want. He's just not. Jesus is not an incantation. He's not a formula. He's not a ritual. He's not a way that you manipulate reality to fit in with the desires that you have for the perfect family or spouse or career or body or health. He's not. He's not. To try to approach Jesus like he's a means to the end that you seek for your happiness, depth, and joy. So if I get Jesus and I do the Jesus thing right, then maybe I'll get the right boyfriend, girlfriend, spouse, job, career. Maybe then the guilt will go away. Maybe then I can, whatever, fill in the blank. To use Jesus like that is to actually be left naked and bloody like these Jewish exorcists that were borrowing faith that was formulaic and more like an incantation than a relationship with Christ. These Ephesian Christians are so different. They've turned from magic and manipulation and they've received Jesus as ultimate reality. And in repentance and faith, they're asking him to bend them and their desires and wills to line up with what's real and what's true. This is real Christianity. It's to be born again by the grace of God. It's to know and love Jesus. And it's then over the rest of your lifetime to realize that reality doesn't need to be bent to fit into your narcissistic demands to be served. But reality is Jesus and your will and desires need to be bent to value and love and behold him, to extol him to see him as more beautiful and worthy of the kind of sacrifice that would call you to burn all of your books of magic. I don't know what your book of magic is. Maybe it's, maybe it's sex that you use to try to control self and outcome. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's power. Maybe it's your job. But man, we all have our spells. Like we really do. We all have our magic And this text is this beautiful highlight between the difference of weird, manipulative, magic, dead religion, moralism that manipulates and tries to change reality to fit in with desire and true authentic faith, which gives us new hearts that actually begin to see Jesus as more beautiful and more real and more true than anything else in our lives. So as I close this today, Real simple, real quick. As I close it today, are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? Like, if you can't answer that with, yes, I've been born again as evidenced by true faith and repentance, then just be honest with yourself and say, oh yeah, I'm not a Christian. That's a better place to begin a conversation and to look inside of your own life and soul. That's a way more honest place than, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm dating a Christian. Yeah, I'm a Christian from a Christian family. Don't play that game with yourself. 
Jesus, the founder of our faith, the rock that the faith is built on, he would define it as, you must be born again. Are you born again? (laughs) And if you've been born again, have you, as the pull on all of us is so strong, have you been pulled out of Jesus being the end, him being ultimate reality that we need to be conformed to? Have you been pulled back to all kinds of silly games with Jesus and with others and with self that are trying to manipulate reality to line up with what you want. Like, let me give you a quick example because that sounds a little vague and weird. Everything related to sex and sexuality in our culture, it's all, um, as, as one of my favorite authors, he wrote a great book called Divine Sex, as he put it, it's all like happiness technologies where we're trying to bend reality to fit in with our desires. So if you're a Christian and you're having sex outside of the covenant of marriage, that's a form of, that's a form of the kind of manipulation and witchcraft instead of, instead of, hey, here's ultimate reality as a name, Jesus. And he's instituted sex to be this covenantal gift between a husband and a wife. And outside of that covenantal gift, it actually doesn't lead to human thriving and flourishing. It it inhibits human thriving and flourishing. Therefore, I want my desire for sex to be conformed with ultimate reality, which is Jesus and his word and his commands. Now, like, can you feel like, oh, well, I do that. Because I do that in different areas of my life. Repentance is that continual work of, oh man, I'm not lined up with reality. I'm not lined up with Jesus as king, as boss, as savior, as master. I need to repent again. I need to come back again. I need to ask him to reshape my affections and desires in such a way that my life is congruent with reality as it is. Not the weird version of narcissistic reality where I get to sort of chase whatever my current passions and desires are like they're actually going to satisfy. 